those trust traumas, um, we, we talk about them as living death. Uh, and so it is, it is serious. It is, it is very um, challenging to embrace the magnitude of what's going on. But there are ways out. You know, a fair recovery produces a better marriage when two people are willing to do the work. The humility piece allows her to change. We're not going into this process without an idea of what's going on. Um, for those who are in, in pain and hurting, like there is structure and there is knowledge about how to help. Your end does not have to be determined by the wound. We are two unique female professionals and friends that have come together to have meaningful conversations and a little fun along the way. Welcome to the Arable Podcast, where curious minds grow. I'm your host, Jenna Mountain. And I'm your other host, Kimberly Galindo. All right, y'all. We have the exciting opportunity to sit down with a friend and colleague today, um, Matt Fessum. Um, we have he has so graciously um, joined us to, to have a conversation today. We've known Matt for several years now and are just buddies and friends and colleagues. And um, we just knew that his brilliance needed to be shared with our listeners. And so we're going to have a awesome conversation with him today. Um, before we dive in, just tell y'all a little bit about Matt. So he's a licensed professional counselor um, in the great state of Texas. He's a marriage and family therapist. He's also a certified sex therapist, which is really kind of where our past cross was in the sex therapy world. And so we get to um, do lots of professional ventures with Matt on that front. Um, and while Matt works with a range of marital, parenting, emotional, individual issues, he, he's, he's a specialist in sex therapy, which um, allows him to walk with clients in a variety of issues on that front. Um, he's, he's brilliant, y'all, uh, as a therapist, as a speaker, as an educator. And so we're just, we're thrilled to sit down and um, I think record a conversation um, that we've, we've had throughout the years with Matt. We just sit down and have lots of conversations that I always walk away feeling uplifted, encouraged, informed um, when, when I talk with Matt and Jenna and the three of us get to be together. So um, today we just get the privilege of doing that, but hit and record so y'all can be a part of it. So welcome, yeah. Matt. Thank you all. I appreciate the invitation. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you guys, consult with you, and just uh, I like batting things around. Talk shop. Between our minds, our minds to see what uh, what we come up with. I know. Well, Matt, why don't you share a little bit about yourself with our audience? Um, tell, tell your own story. So I am a missionary kid. Uh, I grew up West Africa, uh, born in uh, Cote d'Ivoire. So I could hold dual citizenship, but didn't want to spend time in the African military. So uh, decided not to go down that road. But um, 10 years of boarding school. Um, my family is kind of all over America right now. So we've got Michigan, Tennessee, Georgia, and then here in here in Texas. Uh, my wife's a missionary kid as well, so we actually 
met overseas at boarding school and uh, didn't start dating till college. Two years in a long distance relationship there. And then uh, it was one of those things if, I, you know, Texans don't leave Texas. And so it's true. Her family, her family was from here. And so I figured if I was going to marry this sweet lady, I had to, well, I had to become Texan. So <laughs> we love to adopt. There Welcome. So not born here, but got here as fast as I can. Bumper sticker person, I guess. And mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, uh, did seminary uh, for marriage and family therapy and then moved into public mental health. And I actually didn't ever think I was going to move out of public mental health. Kind of thought I was going to be, uh, I don't know, maybe mental health director of a clinic, advance myself kind of up the public Mm-hmm. I didn't know exactly what that was, but uh, uh, that led me to work in the community with kids, and then I uh, did a six-year stint as a forensic therapist in Tarrant County Jail. So I worked with inmates that had mental health problems, and uh, you know it was fun times. Uh, sometimes doing a hundred suicide evaluations a week up in mm-hmm. jail. Uh, it was, it was, it was good work. Very, uh, very educational. Uh, but during that time, uh, is when I kind of felt a really strong calling and leading to Institute for Sexual Wholeness and mm-hmm. started down that education path. And, uh, Kristen, uh, my wife kind of prayed me into private practice and had a colleague, uh, that I work with right now who invited me to start seeing some clients on the side and then slowly transitioned into full-time and private practice. So family for me is super important because growing up, I was away from my family, you know, six, seven months out of the year at boarding school while they were in a different country. I was with my siblings, but uh, I was not with my parents. So I've always had a, you know, kind of a deep personal burden to help um, family be restored. So the idea of uh, marriage and family therapy is super valuable to me, super core to uh, what I believe in, and mm-hmm. keeping that home together as best as possible. And mm-hmm. as we all know, when you go through schooling, they tell you that uh, you can't do good marriage therapy without really talking about sexuality. So mm-hmm. it's like, well, if I'm going to really jump into family and the home and try to help. I've got to get a better grasp on this sexuality thing. So that's what led me to ISW and uh, into private practice where now mostly working with uh, couples, trying to keep that foundational dyad home connected and, mm-hmm. uh, so that uh, we can keep that home united as best as possible. Safe place for kids to grow up, all that good stuff. So that's awesome. What about me? Awesome. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Uh, missionary kid turned sex therapist. That's always a fun story. I love that. It's my favorite story. <laughs> it's so good. A couple, of, a couple of the people we know that have that same story. I know. I know. Uh-huh. It's, always, it's always fun um, to surprise people with like, look at that. Um, so we could have gone a lot of different directions, I think, in our conversation today. You know, we're all sex therapists. Um do marriage work it just uh, there's a million directions and um, but as we thought about something that I think your voice would be so powerful 
in a conversation about, um, we wanted to have a conversation about our fair recovery work. Um, we all um, have background in that. We, we have seen clients um, and walked with them in, in a fair recovery. And um, But you have a unique perspective, I think, as each clinician does. Um, and so I think I want our audience to learn from that, hear from that, um, and for us to just talk through that. Um, so can you explain uh, to our audience um, who may or may not, you know, have, have that background, kind of your perspective and approach to fear recovery work and healing and, you know, um, as you see that process and kind of your vantage point and perspective, because I think it's, it's so valuable and I'd love um, for our audience to, to hear more about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the fair recovery as a as a counselor, it's it's one of those things where you don't really know what you're walking into, right? There's frameworks yeah. and structures that we all have, and you know we've all studied with Doug and Mike, and so you know we know the frameworks that that they use. But I, uh, you know, I had to pretty quick like get a different construct than the word affair to be able to address and work with couples coming in that they're saying, well, is it an affair? Is it not an affair? You know, there's this whole big argument and debate about like what actually happened and what constitutes an affair. Did somebody really cheat or not cheat? And so I, in my own mind, like I, I don't really worry so much about that word. And that's kind of where it starts for me is that it's a trust trauma. You know, I, I feel like I deal with a lot of trust traumas. Um, you know, I, I, I do say that I work about 40% of my clients are in fair recovery. I will say that generally, but in my mind, what I'm trying to process is that there's been a breach of trust, uh, which I say is a word that we use to describe how safe we feel with someone. Mm-hmm. We don't yeah. like talking exactly in the context of safety. We don't like, you know, I feel safe with you or not safe with you. I think it gives off a vibe that somebody has, you know, maybe been physically abusive or uh, something along those lines. So people, I, I don't hear people talking the word safety all that much, but uh, I do feel like it, for me in my own framework, I mean, I will say outward affair recovery that I'm doing that, but in my own mind, I'm thinking there's been a major safety violation uh, that's happened. And so uh, the, the trust trauma there uh, is kind of, the 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 way that I start even percept you know having a perception of what's going on uh, inside uh, of a of a couple. Yeah, I love the way you're 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 going there, um, and and we do all have some similar training and mentorship. I it's a relational trauma, and so as someone who would uh, refer to themselves as a trauma therapist and spend a lot of time working with trauma. Uh, one of one of the helpful um, concept maps for me is to treat this like relational trauma, and um, and I, I I could go a hundred directions. I don't think people really are patient enough with trauma healing. I think that that applies to this area as well. I'd like to know your thoughts. Well, it's. You know, you got the statistics out there that say, you know, it's going to take five years, right, before somebody is not 
you know, the person that's wounded is not sitting there thinking about this every day. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so it's like some people look at that and say, well, I can't do this. Like they see that number and say, I'm not doing this for five years. Mm-hmm. I'm not, we're not going to try to work to the point that, you know, five years from now, maybe this violation, this trust trauma, this lack of safety isn't ever present on my mind all the time. And so you're right. I mean, I do think that there's a, you know, heal me quick mentality in our culture just in general, but Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, what we're the number one consumers of anti-anxiety medication, antidepressants, anti-pain in the world. Uh, so we have a very, you know, heal me quick mentality. And so something like this, I don't think, I don't think people realize like how severe of an issue it is. Mm -hmm. It's affairs are normalized in our culture. Um, it's glorified on TV. So I, I do think there are clients that walk into the office and say like, okay, well, uh, he cheated, she cheated, but we're going to, we want to save our relationship and it's going to be kind of quick. But we all know that trauma, especially when it's an attachment trauma, you know, safety trauma, um, like it rips you to your core. So you're, you're talking about having to rebuild from, uh, like the deep center all the way mm-hmm. back out. So it, it is, it can be a very long process, but what I like to encourage people is that the crisis of it doesn't have to be five years long. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so we, we talk about like, what are we being patient for? Uh, I think we want to get out of crisis, but a lot of people mm-hmm. go from crisis to um, stabilization uh, and what I want to work towards is help people get from stabilization into thriving mm-hmm. and and pass that place. Um, I say, uh, you know, a lot like money, uh, you know, people use the phraseology paycheck to paycheck. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of couples, unfortunately, in a trauma cycle will live from trauma or crisis to crisis, mm-hmm. very much in the same way and don't know how to bounce out of that. So patience. Yeah, Jenna, that's a that's an important <laughs> important need. I mean, and I I've just found that to be true. Uh, and Kimberly, I'd love to hear from you too. I found that to be true uh, across the board of traumas that um, you know mm-hmm. I work with in my office. There's just a it, yes, it requires patience, and the other component is we. I think maybe as a community and society have not for a million reasons, we could spend a whole podcast unpacking. We've just not educated um, our world on what mental health healing requires. And so I would say the vast majority of people who come in to do trauma work and really want the outcome, right? Like the, the health and the thriving at the end do not have a framework for how long this work can take. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, and I think that this just gets added into that as another area that they're like, wait, 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 it, like we're not going to be done in, in eight weeks or six weeks. Um, and I, I think there are some programs out there that don't help with that either. Um, like I've seen a fair recovery programs that, you know, they are, they're, they're short. And so people go, Hey, we did this and now we want to just come in and spend 12 weeks with you. And I'm like, well, you are free to leave when you want to. I'm not sure we will get there in 12 weeks. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's a, 
uh, there's part of this where it we well I'm mean, going back to a little bit what I said before but we really don't like pain and so uh, it's not a lack of education just on trauma but one of the things that just goes through my mind is like you know we're very pain averse mm-hmm. but the process of learning that pain is a teacher an educator an informer uh, that that's not a comfortable it's not a comfortable thought it's not a pleasant one um, so it's uh, it, it definitely can 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 rock us especially if we're talking deep pain can make it really hard to say I've got to embrace this for how long and I like to say it doesn't mean that you're gonna be in therapy for five years it, it doesn't mean that you're gonna be in you know some type of you know financial or you know group investment or something for you know maybe even you know some some of my clients like I, it totally surprised me when one of my one of my clients, uh, 12 weeks in, actually, like, fantastically different interactions, safe with each other, safeguards of three months of really hard work. And I've kept up with them. Um, and they are still doing really well. And it's been four years post, uh, or three years post counseling. Um, you know, so sometimes you get these situations where it's like people are perfectly primed for healing and then you have other situations where it's not so uh, i think sometimes people look at you know their friends or stories they've heard and i'm in deep pain but somebody got over it quick so that's going to be my story too i want to go back to a comment you made about safety and the idea that what you're trying to do is rebuild a sense of safety And you were describing, forgive me, I can't remember how you worded it, but basically that it's a little lost on some people that that's what you're working on. Um, This, this, you know, felt sense of safety, this concept of safety. I have found even in doing just intimacy work that I bring up that word a lot, that, that, that language is in my vocabulary clinically Mm -hmm. a lot. And people really will get kind of jarred when I will reflect, you know, oh, it, it doesn't sound like you feel safe. And, it, and and all parties feel jarred because that feels like such an intense word to label, you know, the space with because wow. they would never want to say that their spouse isn't safe and they would yep. never want to say they didn't feel safe in the relationship. Uh, can we go there? Like the three of us, and let's talk about why it's so important to actually put that correct label into the space and help people start to, you know, uh, get acquainted with using, I don't know, honest language for what's happening instead of rescuing each other. That's what comes to my mind. Like you don't rescue each other from going, I don't feel safe right now. Like that's what's happening, I think, in 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 my office a lot of the times. They don't want to use the word safe because it feels so harsh. You know, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Well, and I think too, there's a, we have our operational definition, if you will, is limited as a society about safety. Cause I think a lot of the pushback I get, um, some of it is, yes, I don't want to do that cause I'd rather rescue. Um, or it's, but I'm, I'm not an unsafe person. I'm not 
physically harming them or I'm not screaming at them or I'm not throwing things. And they go to a, like the, the kind of kind of violent safety piece, which obviously that, that is a part of, of safety, but just what relational safety as a foundational element is defined as, and it should be in all relationships, should be in marriage, should be in work, should be in friendship. Like, am I safe um, in this context, in this relationship to be, to be vulnerable, to use my I statements, to share my feelings, to be where I am. Um, so I think there's that piece of it that we're not, we're not complex in our definition. We're not nuanced in our definition. Um in that and then just you know I think it vulnerability is hard right you know so I think sometimes it's like even if it's like okay well let's get to that definition I think once we do then we have to be vulnerable and differentiated and boy howdy those are not fun to do either and those all go together so you know I think it just is like oh we don't want to do that so it's you know as soon as you say the word safety you have to talk about the contrary, right? You have to talk about the word abuse, right? And the operation. Okay, Matt, let's go there. Come on, I'm ready. The operational definition of abuse, you know, I you hear it all the time. We think of the overt abuses. You think of the bruises on somebody. You think of the starvation. You think of the, of the you know, sleeping on the floor or in a cage not provided for. You think of all these things that we, you know, see around us and, you know, I, I separate out uh, overt abuse with covert abuse and the covert abuse system is the emotional neglect. It is the uh, relational detachment that happens. And so this is a super sensitive word in our culture and society. Um, because everybody feels like if you use that word, you know, someone's coming to get you and take you away. Mm. And so we are very, I think, shy about that word, especially in, in therapy. And I've had to, I've had to look at clients before and say, hey, like, this is abusive. I'm not saying that you have a motive to continuously injure and harm and, uh, you know, that you yourself have an abusive heart towards somebody, but the product of your behavior, you reap what you sow, is that it is providing an environment where somebody's neglected, uh, somebody's isolated, left out, lonely. Uh, big word for affair recovery: abandonment. You've abandoned mm -hmm. your spouse. Uh, you've left them on the side of the road. You were driving down the road. You kicked them out of the car and said, "You're not allowed to ride in this car anymore." And I'm inviting somebody else into this car, and you're just going to sit there on the side of the road, and so the, uh, is that, you know, is violating someone's safety and trust abuse? And I think confidently we can say yes, but it's, it does not mean, and this is the, the hard part in the conversation. It's like, all of a sudden it's like, oh, the counselor just called me an abuser. Like, well, no, I didn't call you an abuser. So what you did was abusive. And so we have to stand back and say, okay, now we have to define the word abuser, right? And there's, mm -hmm. if we are, I, I loved, um, uh, I think you guys are familiar with Leslie Burnick. Um, I went to a, a truth conference uh, education thing for her with the account for counselors. Um, and she said that we all have to recognize the abusive things that we all do. 
Mm-hmm. Not like that. It's like, excuse me? <laughs> you did it? Did it make you feel good? Like warm and fuzzy? What did you just say to me? You know? And then she outed herself in front of, you know, hundreds of counselors. She said, here's a story about how I did an abusive thing to my son. And she tells a story. And I'm sitting there kind of like, well, I was really courageous. Who's going to come get her? Uh, and then she right. made the distinction between somebody who, you know, fat, you know, develops a pattern of, of abusive behavior towards someone and somebody who recognizes that they've done something abusive and makes changes. And that's this huge distinguishing mark for mm-hmm. me in my mind when I'm looking at a trust trauma. Will this person who's done this abuse to someone, they've abused the safety that they're supposed to have in this attachment relationship, will this person change, take responsibility, and go down a different road? But someone, and we've all probably encountered this story, where someone says, I'm not going to change, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And you just look at what what is reaped from... The person who's wounded and you walk away and say yeah. like, they are just like someone who was physically abused sexually abused verbally abused you know and so you're you're sitting there going like if it, if it looks like this then that's what's being produced in this person's life and so we have to honor that that pain and that hurt and say and call it call it what it is so um it's hard to do but uh, I mean, it's it's hard, I think, I don't know about y'all, but I think it's hard as a counselor to step in that place and say, this is what is really going on. Because, you know, we don't want to offend. That's not the point. It's tr- try to find healing. Yeah. But I don't think if somebody can really take responsibility for the reality of what's been done, then mm. don't really get an opportunity to heal. I have done something abusive to you. I have threatened your safety. I mean, this is, it's not good for man to be alone. This is all the mm-hmm. way to the Bible. This is in secular psychology. You go all the way to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. And I mean, somebody's core safety needs have been violated through an affair. And it's like, well, this this is it wasn't granted. There's no granted permission here. So my safety was abused. It was violated. Take responsibility for it. It's incredibly difficult. But once you start that, um, you know, the humility piece. Yeah allows there to change the surrender to a different path all of a sudden starts to come in but the the individuals men and women both i'm not calling out guys predominantly here i'm not you know saying mm-hmm. mostly men but men and women both when they do not want to be humble and responsible you know you you sit in a place of continuing a pattern of hurt in someone else's life yeah there's there's a couple things that you said that made me think about I don't know, elements that come into the space when doing this type of healing work. Um, one, I love your boldness. Um, that might be my eight uh, in saying like, we need to call out abuse. We just need to call it what it is. And there being this dynamic of, I am not an abuser. And um, it, it, it reminded me of, of a couple conversations I've been having as of late where you know, when someone basically is like, they want to be, they want to be told that they are doing good and a good person because they simply have not broken the law. Mm-hmm. And I'm always quick to say that just makes you a not criminal. Like that doesn't actually mean you're doing good 
towards others or, or whatnot. That just means like you have, you're not going to go to jail, like, or you're not going to get a ticket. And so, um, and I say that because I think we want to be cleared on that level, but when, then we want the relationship to be able to warrant this like good, warm, connected feeling. But I just, but based on, I just haven't technically crossed this line and we are talking about crossing lines. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I think when people are working in this realm, it gets into this idea of like, I just need to be right and I need to be not labeled this thing. And when they're in that posture, you know, you talked about this posture of humility, you can't start recreating safety because you are simply in a protective stance of really your pride, your reputation, whatever that might be. Like, I just have to protect that. I'm not a criminal. I didn't do this thing that was wrong. I didn't do this thing that was wrong. Well, I didn't do that. And I didn't cross this line. And that's a protective stance that doesn't lend itself to humility or safety or connection or vulnerability. Um, But they're so busy on the technical definitions of the language that we might use to help them get into that space. And so I've just experienced there's a lot of resistance on the front end getting through that that portion of the healing process of like, we need to call this what it was. Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. And as you were talking, Matt, what was coming up for me was... um, I'll borrow a little bit from Everett Worthington's kind of forgiveness model. We've got to name the harm. We've got to name what we have done and our role in that very clearly. Um, And so even when folks can get to the place where they go, this is what this was. This was my role in that. The next layer that I find to be curious to hear what what you, you guys would say is, the ability to acknowledge that that's not just where it ends. I have abused you, neglected you, broken trust. Here's how I've done that. Because I think sometimes it's like, whew, okay, I did that, versus having the staying power to know that the cost is high. Because when we've broken trust, there's there's consequence and there's there's cost to that that I think that's a hard place to stay in too, even when you can get to, and which is a hard first step to here's the harm and my role in it. It's also the ability to stay with, to your point at the beginning of conversation, to stay with the pain of the other, of ourselves, of the system, you know, and name the cost in order to get to a place where there can be healing. But it's like, okay, I can name that I, been abusive and here's what it looked like and whew, we're done right you know and I think it can still be this guarded maybe a few bricks have come down from the wall of defense but we really have a lot of defensiveness still there um and I think it's human I mean I I, I we can all name those those things mm-hmm. in our life where it just feels, it feels better to go well I took ownership I, I named the harm and what I what I have in it but the staying power to be able to say and here's the cost to you, the person who I've harmed, um, and how do we repair that? Um, I think is once the vision of that has been cast by us as um, clinicians, I think the the point of where is this going to go? What's the trajectory on this experience? I, I can determine the, in those early sessions with the ability to 
name and define and own and then have the ability to stay with and the cost is high. And if folks can do that, the trajectory does look different. But I think a lot of the wrestling we do is in these beginning ownership and humility and staying power ways um, from jump. I'd be curious what you think. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think this for us is where it, it's super helpful to have, uh, you know, as a, so I am an attachment theorist and I think we all, you know, love, you know, Bowlby and Johnson and uh, everyone that's out there that's taking uh, attachment theory to a different level, EFT, and then just the, the deep, meaningful connections that you can formulate with people. And if we don't, um, for us, it's super helpful to have that construct and to try to help someone see when they're taking responsibility for what the deep pain that caused someone and saying like, but at the same time that there's this deep pain, this high cost, give some encouragement that, hey, we get hurt in the context of relationship, and you all know this phrase, we heal in the context of relationship because we are people that attach. And so taking responsibility, uh, holding on to like the high cost of what's been done. Um, yeah, I, I, I try and I'm going to personalize this here, uh, but I try really hard to know if I'm going to bring this up. And this is for all of our listeners right now, too, who are probably sitting there going like, oh, my gosh, these people are calling us abusers. You know, or someone's going to listen and say, hey, I listen to this podcast. I'm going to go home and say, these these three therapists, they said that you abused me. Um, you know, and it's, <laughs> and we, we know how it works. And uh, we just have to sit there and say, "There's a, that's just not the whole story. There's responsibility, there's high cost, and it's still not the whole story. Let's lead into something else that can, say, give you hope and encouragement. There is a, there is a way out. But uh, th that's what was coming to my mind when you talking through that is just that extra step of we've hit something really hard and so I want to also come in with some really good encouragement for you too yeah something that came up for me as both of you guys were dialoguing through the ownership piece and I don't we 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 all have some similar training and mentorship but we may still stylistically do things differently which is the fun part and I think a lot of this has come from a combination of background. I mean, I love Worthington's model. I love that you brought that up, Kimberly. Uh, while I am not a CSAT sex addiction, uh, certified sex addiction therapist, um, I've sat under some of those trainings from some of those people and like learned a lot about the betrayal recovery part of how they do that. Um, and I, I think an important component is in the ownership uh, component of this is that the offended party gets to name the cost. And I, that is another speed bump that I think is hard to uh, get through for a lot, for a lot of people, because I think that, you know, I think it's a lot to do that first step that you guys are talking about. Uh, but I know in my process, then I will, like that, you know, almost like the confession of this is what technically happened. And then the, the wounded party gets to go, well, this is what this is costing, you know, and it not from a punitive perspective. Yeah. It costs me like this is, these are, and, and then their very human experience and process of this is what 
I'm going to have to do and we're going to need to do so that I can repair that trust. And I find that that's the next really challenging level because the offending party um, doesn't like that they don't get to weigh in on the cost. Like they, that's, it's painful. I mean, it is a loss of control in a lot of ways um, uh, over some components, not of themselves. They still get to choose what they're willing and not willing to do. And I'm, I'm real quick to, to, you know, remind of that, but the wounded and offended party gets to decide really articulate what the cost is. So I, I don't know what y'all stylistic approach is to that, but I, I find that to be a uh, conceptually really hard pill to swallow. Yeah. I ask clients, it's a brutally hard assignment. I think um, sometimes I almost feel mean assigning it. Um, but I try to ask the wounded spouse to write their abandonment story. Ooh. Yeah. I do something similar. I don't call it that, but I like that language. I like it a lot. Yeah, and it, it's it is a it is hard to write that story to accept what has happened to me. Um, we talk about what's been done, and then the component of what's been done to me. Um, and interestingly enough, like I uh, I hear a lot of um, you know the the conversation. Right? She wants to know all the details. He wants to know all the details. What has happened? Like. They're going digging. They're looking through text. They're looking through social media. They're looking through all this stuff. And the question is, why are they doing that? Uh, isn't it enough to know that I I betrayed them with someone else? Either emotional uh, connection with someone else, sexual connection, sharing, sexting, all these things. Like, isn't it enough that they just know that that happened? And the concept of the abandonment story is helping people realize that when you go digging for details, you're not trying to find all the nitty gritty, nasty things about your spouse. You're trying to figure out what happened to you. It's a good word. You're trying to figure out your story. And we all want to know our story. You guys asked me at the beginning, Matt, tell your story. Kind of how you, you know, you ended up here. And we all want to know our story. Uh, and so it's always fun, right? As an adult, your parents tell you more of the story. You know, about what happened when you were a kid growing up and you're like, oh, it makes more sense. But it's the same thing that's happening in these in these really dark, hard places as they name the cost of what's happened to them. They're trying to find out their story. And I and when the individual, the spouse that's harmed um, in, in this way, latches onto that mentality, it's not attack. It's not attack. They're not attacking me. They're really trying to figure out, like, kind of like, what, so what did you do to me? Not what did you do to me, but so what did this do to me? And I need you to hear that story. So the abandonment story is helping them see what happened to them. It helps them name their cost. Um, another one that I have is uh, they get to write their injustice list, uh, injustice list, all the things that they feel like were violated um, in the context of of the affair or the trust trauma? How was my safety taken advantage of? How was I abused in this way? Um, and the, that helps name the cost because they might not know it. Uh, and, but the more information we have about that attachment wound uh, down in there is, is hopefully I, I, I say to the guys or ladies that have offended, I say like, this, this is your roadmap. 
like they're painting you a road back to their heart by telling you the story. Uh, so the accepting the pain, naming the pain, it it's the roadmap of moving towards something better. It's the roadmap mm. of moving towards, well, I don't ever want to abandon you that way again. I don't ever want to hurt you that way again. And let me let me reveal what I need to do different to move down a different path. I like to say that there's there really isn't anything that you can do about history except forgive. You can't change it. It happened. But what we can do is learn from history to paint a different future together and move down that road. So we have to look at history to know where to go and what to do different. Um, but I see all the time people uh, trying to, I want to make it up to you. I want to make it up to you. I want to make it up to you. I want to, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, do this, do this, do this. And we, we look at some of the penance things. We say they can be meaningful. But in the end, like, the only thing that really will work, and Kimberly brought up the forgiveness model. There's several of them out there. Worthington's great. Uh, but the only thing that will really heal history uh, is the ability to work through forgiveness and then painting a road future through the pain that we learn about um, brings the opportunity for that attachment to happen again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're talking about that a little bit. We've mentioned this on a previous podcast, totally different topic. Um, I agree that forgiveness is um, really important. And I'm real tender about bringing that into the space sure. personally, <laughs> because I, I think and I love the church, uh, but the church has done such a terrible job of teaching about and leading people through it at times. Um, and, by, and by that, I mean, I think they've over-spiritualized it and not captured um, what what is really in scripture. Um, the magnitude of that process, how hard it is, um, the, you know, it's a painful process for the forgiver. Mm-hmm. Um and so, and Worthington, I, I'm biased. Worthington's model is my favorite um, at, at this point because I think it gives one. I think it dovetails really beautifully with trauma. Um, so that there may be where some of my bias comes from, but I also think it lends itself to a an intentional, thoughtful, and slow when needed process um, that I don't always think that is taught well in our society. I typically take. I, I want to say, like, I feel like it comes up about six months to maybe a year in mm. before it, you, mm-hmm. know, price, you know, maybe the crisis by that time has started to abate a little bit, pull back. Uh, the intensity of the pain is still there, but it's not as determinative um, in daily function. Um, and somebody inevitably is going to bring up, so when am I going to get forgiven? and um, yeah but it, like the the it, it is incredibly difficult to talk about forgiveness when you're trying to survive every day inside of a home where your trust has been totally shattered and you don't know if your spouse leaving the home it means that at the end of the day you hear that there's been another violation with pornography another violation with social media texting something but you have not you've been home or you've been at work but you haven't been safe Mm. And so it's incredibly difficult to talk about the forgiveness piece when you feel like you're living in an earthquake where 
I don't know mm-hmm. what footing is underneath me. Am I mm-hmm. safe today or am I not safe today in this relationship? Am I going to get hurt today again or am I not going to get hurt? It's until there's mm-hmm. something paved movement towards healing. It's like, okay, now I'm standing on some more firm ground. Um, I would say those those more intense conversations about forgiveness, that's when they start to creep in. At least that's experiential for me in counseling. That's kind of when it starts to, I would say, become more meaningful. Um, you know, I, I always appreciate the clients and couples that walk in and they start the story by saying, now, Matt, uh, I want you to know, I have already forgiven them for what they did to me. <laughs> yeah. Great fantastic um like i'm super thankful the question that comes up in my mind is are you keeping the door of forgiveness open every day um Mm. forgiveness is not at any given time we can stop forgiving something you know we can say i'm not gonna forgive that anymore and you're gonna get my vengeance and my wrath Mm -hmm. and you know keeping an attitude heartbeat uh, a patient a long-suffering love is long-suffering uh, a long forgiveness mentality. Um, I always appreciate when couples come in and tell me that. Um, and I know at some point in time, we're going to get around to talking about the long suffering that it takes uh, to mm-hmm. be a forgiver of mm-hmm. things that are, you know, abusive, deeply wounding, abandonment. And we're talking about some serious words today. Um, they're yep. heavy. They, they hurt. They're not often in our lingo language, but affairs, uh, or the, I would say like the, those trust traumas, um, we, we talk about them as living death. Um, and so it is, it is serious. It is, it is very um, challenging to embrace the magnitude of what's going on. But there are ways out. That's why we do what we do. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Matt, you've talked about some components along the way in our conversation today. But um, I, I would like you to speak a little more to just uh, affair recovery, trust trauma recovery, and that process and how you see it working best. Um, I know some um, some therapists kind of have a concept map of, of a general process, knowing that it's flexible to each human who sits in front of us, but just um, a flow and order of your process that you see as working best. I've heard you kind of name that, but just even as far as ownership and um, naming things and, and some different components, but just curious as you sit with this struggle, if you have a, a process that you would say this tends to work best, this tends to get to um, good healing work um, as you work yeah. with folks. Yeah, from a from a practical standpoint, um, I start out. I mean, we we want to know. You know, is is this couple? Are they here? Is this the last ditch effort before divorce? Like, and they're already determined to go to divorce. You know, uh, this is it. I'm done. I'm out. But I needed to come talk to a marriage counselor first, um, maybe to get the approval. Um, I kind of want to know the motive uh, that's in there. That's that's very early on for me as to um, you know you know why somebody is, is in the office telling me the story. Um, but when um, and you know doing uh, you know separation counseling or, or like helping couples separate well in the midst of crisis it's very challenging very hard work but it is a meaningful work as i've worked with several couples who admit when they come in like yeah we're probably not here to heal so okay well then one of the things we want to try to do is see if we can 
separate in an amenable way um, where it doesn't have to be more trauma, more hurt, more woundedness out of it. So assessing that, I think, very initially helps um, me understand my direction. Uh, let's go down the road, though, of, um, you know, they want to stay together. Uh, I, you know, the biggest part, obviously, is they're going to have to tell their story again, you know, for somebody new to hear it. And uh, that's uh, super challenging. They may have told us like 15 people, 30 people, or no one before they even get into your office. And they're, they're story tired, right? They're tired of walking down the same thing. And they're just constantly, their mind, their brain's being constantly exposed to it. So uh, I, I like to know if they're confident and able to tell their story, if they need a lot of help in telling their story. Uh, so those are some of the initial kind of things I do. Uh, after that, I'm looking for um, the basic functions of, of safety. You know, do they do they feel like their livelihood is at stake? Do they, you know, are we talking about job transitions? Because you guys know, I mean, there's, you know, you get asked to leave a job because, uh, yeah. you know, depending on the type of relationship or interaction that happened, you, you may got fired. And there's all these like life crises things that may be happening externally. Um, and so you try to help couples walk through that. Um, in the back of my mind, I am listening uh, for those words of safety. I'm listening for those words of loneliness. I'm listening for the words of something meaningful was done today that helps me have confidence. Uh, and initially, in the if I can if I can hear those words, if I can uh, hear those in the in the, the beginning story, then I have a lot more confidence that. You know, we're going to head down a kind of maybe a quicker road. And if not, I feel like there's a lot of education that kind of steps in. I'm I mean, working, you know, we work with couples that are like, this is how attachment happens. <laughs> and this is how it's been broken. So um, mm -hmm. moving down the road a little bit, um, crisis, big picture, crisis resolve. They're functioning, they're in home together, there's more healthy interaction. Uh, now we actually get to the deeper work of, you know, can they attach at a core level or are they just doing life side by side? Kind of waiting for the next shoe to fall or domino to topple down or whatnot. Can we get past that moving into now we're really doing connection? Uh, we're stable. But can we get into uh, that thriving piece? And some of the models talk about that being a maintenance uh, phase of doing the right things over and over. But I, I really like to say let's push into more of what marriage was really designed for. Uh, so it's it's all like my thought process and how I work with couples is going to be all guided by how secure this attachment um, mm -hmm. is forming. And whether or not it's like, you know, you always jump back into some type of crisis, I feel like in the midst of it, um, some the triggering event. Um, uh, and regarding that, um, I'm assessing early on for PTSD like react reactions in the wounded spouse. Um, are there other alternatives for therapy that need to be brought in? Does somebody need to do EMDR? Does somebody need to walk neurofeedback? Um, you know, other forms of, I, I've sent several clients to do uh, equine therapy um, yes. with their trauma and, um, you know, abused spouses, hurt spouses, uh, abandoned spouses, finding a lot of 
resilience coming back from those other types of therapy. So we're trying to assess, is working on the intimate attachment right now the right thing to do? Because maybe there's that's a hard one. other things that need to happen first. So yep. I feel like in answering your question, Kimberly, I've kind of gone all over the place on all the assessment things that I do in my mind, but um, it's awesome. uh, those are a lot of things that are kind of jumping around for us as therapists. And, you know, maybe our listeners are like, well, they just know exactly what they're doing every single time. But we are looking for all kinds of things in people's stories and their words to try to help them uh, accomplish a deeper level of safety and connection. Yeah. Uh, so it, it is complex and complicated. Um, but again, big picture, what are the individual issues? Uh, if there's sex addiction, you know, if there's PTSD, maybe on one side, maybe there's a sex addiction on the other side. Or this is super common too. Maybe somebody has been uh, uh, dealing with long-term abuse issues of their own that have never come out. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we have another deeply wounded individual who's not quote unquote an offender. All of a sudden they're a deeply hurt person and they need help too before they can really accomplish that intimate connection again. So um, yeah. I feel like a lot of times my brain goes a lot of places. Uh, when people tell their stories uh, and trying to figure out how to best help them. But there are definitely some certain guiding things that, uh, that I am looking for. I love that you, you put the question into our conversation in the space that we are, I'll be bold and speak for all three of us and y'all can tell me if I'm wrong, that we're asking pretty consistently at a certain point into like when the house doesn't feel like it's on fire anymore, we start asking the question, when do we start introducing, um, like helping the client do that? Uh, what did you call it? Intimate attachment again. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that that, I, I hope that this helps some listeners with this concept map, because I think people come into therapy and think they, they're going to do that the session after the intake. Like we're going to start doing that because that's what feels good. And I've come in to help, to ask you to help us feel good. Right. And that's the part that, and that is the part that, although there's a lot of hard work in that, yes, I would say that that's when you start feeling more connected again is when you start to do that work versus the stabilization can feel better in some ways, but it doesn't always feel connecting. And I'm real quick to tell, to tell clients that, Hey, you do feel a version of better as we get the stabilization, you know, get that safe, get to get those safety things back in place, but it's not necessarily the connected feel good feelings because we have to get that in place first before we can start doing that again. And, um, and that's where some of the, the, the rub on, on needing them to be patient with the process can, can show up and um, where we have this concept map as counselors trying to help them get to this really beautiful and sweet place. And they're like, but I, you know, it's just taking so long. It's taking so long. And I'm like, yeah, it is. I know. I know. So I don't know if you feel that way about that, but when you asked that question, I thought, gosh, that's the, that's the question that I feel like they want on session two. And it takes a while to get there. Yeah. The, the interest in it, you know, just, I'm going to just categorize a, you know, big general category underneath the context of like, when do we get to start having sex again? Um, sure. That's part of that. 
and people do all kinds of things with this one, right? I, I feel like we have the, and please hear me, listener, like no judgment here on the efforts to, that's, I'm just being descriptive. Um, but we have couples that go through the honeymoon phase. Like they just want to know, can I actually perform sexual behavior again with uh-huh. the person that wounded me? And that kind of uh, honeymoon phase of, you know, we went and we had, you know, a sexcation, you know, we went away and it was all about, you know, being able to be sexually connected again. Um, and what I find in that is that uh, couples come back and they realize that the sexual interactions and behavior uh, don't save them. Jenna, you mentioned earlier the idea of want to rescue you, rescue you, rescue you. Um, but it's not about sexuality saving the relationship. Um, quite honestly, if it was, I'm going to say this, and it's probably, if it was that simple, I'm going to say that now, that's probably rubbing some people wrong, but if it was that simple, affair recovery really wouldn't be that big a deal. Sure. So mm-hmm. uh, the sex doesn't save, um, but is it vital? Is it important certainly to get back to? Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, you're going to, run up against all kinds of um, history and people's education regarding uh, mm-hmm. sexuality in, in this space. And so this is where the sex therapy side of things, I don't even really think it's uh, too much of the, I would say a fair recovery experience, but this is where all the sex therapy education that we've done starts to really matter in terms of, can we create that dialogue? Can we give that education? Can we coach mm-hmm. them on, um, I talked to couples about, okay, maybe you can't have sex right now because it's it's too uh, triggering, bad memories. Uh, mm-hmm. Clients tell me all the time that in the course of a fair recovery when they're being sexual, like the wounded spouse goes to, well, where's their brain at mm-hmm. right now? Are they really with me? Or it goes to like, well, they did this with somebody else, so it really doesn't mean anything to us right now. Um, and so the, the shutdown that happens internally. And uh, so maybe it's not safe to be sexually intimate, but can we have a safe space still to touch? Can we have a still safe space to cuddle, be close and hold each other and pray over each other and have that, you know, um, and we say pillow talk, uh, that mm-hmm. close connecting conversation with one another um, and be in a place of building toward uh, the the sexual intercourse, the sexual intimacy piece, it is that relational attachment that has that does I say have to heal first uh, for sexuality to have its meaning again for the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's um it, it it's always yeah it is that second session about it's like what do we do about sex? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I'm like, well, what have you already done about it? Oh, yeah. Like, figure out what they've tried first and how it went. That's yep. always a good litmus test. <laughs> yep. Yep. And you hear the, you, you see the giggles, you see the smiles, you see the tears. Yeah, all of it. Yep. I, yeah, a fair recovery, while I do put it, or betrayal work, um, relational trauma, you know, for some people, it is safe to return to that. Um, sooner than later for some people and this, this can be, uh, again, you kind of mentioned this depending on some individual factors, 
what that betrayal has unearthed is a whole litany of other trauma. And it's not really even about the affair anymore. It's just that trauma has now, it's like Pandora's box. We have opened it It's in the space. And so, um, uh, we, we now have to really rein back just, we're not talking even about sex, even though it absolutely impacts that, but like what touches safe, like what can mm-hmm. you do and stay present in your body? Because, and I'm always teaching this to my couples. We do not want to pair a negative experience with touch and intimacy with your spouse, you know? So we want to do as much as we can. That's in like green light, go buckets that feels good and safe. But when it's like red light or you're leaving your body or it is not safe, we we halt those because I, and it's not even because we're withholding or it's like all about one person. It's like, Hey, I don't want to, I, want, I don't want you to pair that in your brain with this person that you're telling me that you love and want to get back to being intimate with because what fires together wires together. And it, that gets really, uh, there's a lot of grief around that. There's a lot of loss around that. And I, it, it's, uh, it, I think it's painful for everybody uh, to hold space for that. So mm-hmm. What do you think, Matt, are the biggest obstacles to a fair recovery? I mean, the whole thing is really hard, really messy. Um, so we're talking about lots of hurdles and speed bumps that are just a part of the process. But like, what are some things for you and your experience that are legitimate obstacles that get in the way that you would want our listeners to know like these things man if I could just remove those from the equation from jump um or raise someone's awareness from the beginning these these are the things yeah it's uh big hurdles that always seem to come up um I like to tell clients that you know a fair recovery is not unique but your story is Um, but there are going to be a lot of common things that we have to address. And so defensiveness, I mean, it is a brutal poison. Yeah. Uh, We talked earlier about humility, uh, defensiveness, and I will say defensiveness, uh, can present itself through avoidance. It can present itself through, uh, this, this total shutdown and silence. I'm not answering that question. Um, or it can come out as, you know, you attack me with your question, so I'm going to fight back uh, with mm. words and anger. Uh, so the silence or anger is a big one. I like to, and, and so, like, if that's a problem, uh, again, we're talking big categories here. Uh, I like to just describe the gentleness um, on the part of the person who's uh, been the offender. Um, gentleness goes... I mean, I can't even say how many miles deep into somebody's heart. Um, if uh, like how C.S. Lewis says it, that, and I'm probably gonna mess this up just a little bit. Sorry, C.S. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, strength uh, without boundary, uh, strength without gentleness is brutality. Um, but strength with a sense of, uh, and he's talking about the knights of old. Uh, who were seen as valiant warriors, abundance and strength. You didn't cross these guys. You didn't mess with them. But they were also seen as the one who were helping the poor, the one who was rescuing the person in distress. They were seen as the one who used their strength to come alongside and help and assist. Uh, so I see defensiveness as being a massive barrier 
Um, and then, you know, we've kind of already touched on this uh, earlier, but um, the inability to share my doubt in a way that's safe uh, for the wounded spouse, the wounded partner. Um, I hear this all the time. Well, they've, they've been fine this week. They, they haven't said anything to me. It's been great. We haven't had any conflict. And then all of a sudden in the safety of the counseling room, they're like, I had about a thousand bad memories the other day. Mm-hmm. And what? What are you talking about? The uh, the inability, and of course we we know. I mean, that's related to them not feeling safe to share. Um, but right. I also I also see that as there are sometimes where um, um, clients it, it it's not just a lack of safety to share, but it's a lack of um, belief that it will actually draw their spouse's attention. Um, so we see clients, uh, I see clients that have pain to share, but they're like, it will only hurt them if I bring up my pain. Mm-hmm. So they don't believe it will actually bring attention towards them. It won't, it won't bring care towards them. Uh, so they're, they're just kind of left sitting with their own doubt. And uh, that I would say, like, if I'm going to pick two, doubt and defensiveness that I feel like I'm constantly boxing against, right? Like yeah. they're throwing punches at me and I'm throwing punches back. Um, if I can, if I can initially help clients, uh, you know, learn to share that pain, the, the, uh, the abandonment story, um, uh, from earlier, if I can get them to learn to share their pain and, uh, the offending spouse being able to, uh, work towards gentleness. Oh man, I feel like it is a, it is a different game. We're going to call it that it is a different place of safety and connection inside the office. Um, cause at that point in time, it's like the attachment safety starts to increase and all of a sudden it's like, we can do this. There's a sense of confidence that comes that when I share my doubt, they don't explode. When I share my hurt, they don't go inward down to, uh, you know, their own personal hell, what they've done and shame. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, the defensiveness on the one side, doubt on the other. I would pick those two. Mm-hmm. What about y'all? I want to know. I want to know what y'all think on that one. <laughs> I, I think that's, you know, yeah, I think defensiveness, uh, there's probably lots of different versions of that. I think that's a pretty good general bucket to put it in. I know that we, we have similar, similar mentors. So in addition to what you said, um, we don't as humans do a very good job of holding space for us and our partners could be on any topic really, but being in different parts of the healing process. So when they're not in the same space as us um, and there's a piece of that, that's really unique to betrayal work and affair recovery. And that like typically the offender gets over things faster than the offended for a lot of reasons. But you know um, one of the things I remember being taught was like, well, once the confession comes out, I feel a lot better to a degree as I've been holding this by myself and working through that and, and whatnot. Well, that is the first moment that that has been, you know, carried um, by the offended party. And so having to constantly remind um, both parties that you are in different spaces. And, and so we're teaching this other skill. We're teaching all these other skills simultaneously while, while working on the thing that they have come in as, as what we would call as counselors, they're presenting complaint. And so this is a presenting complaint, but we are teaching 
empathy skills. We're teaching like, well, what do you do when you like self-differentiation? Like, what do you do when they're in a different space than you are and they have a different perception of that? And um, so, yeah, I think, but I I would add um, self-differentiation typically shows up as a really strong component and typically skill that's lacking. And most, most of the time we have to work on that. Yeah. We're going to use, you know, Doug's model, the five stage model. One of the things I do clients is tell them like when discovery happens the person who's released all the pain that they've been holding in their own life and their own hurt like they're at discovery but you just put the other person at the inception phase you just you put them literally they they did time travel you put them back in time where now they're going to have to walk to meet you at discovery um so there's literally like a a pain time travel thing that happens it's really weird as in in some sense as people start telling about their experience, like they're living three years ago, four years ago. In some cases, they're living 20 years ago again, where something started or even beyond. And they're like, yeah. I feel yeah. like I've gone back in time and all of a sudden my story is totally unknown to me. So yeah, there's a, uh, it's super important, like you're mentioning, to, to bring that concept up of different spaces. Um, mm-hmm. Because if we don't, if we don't respect that, uh, even as counselors trying to respect where each person is at in that, like it, it is very hard to connect. Um, I got to know where you're at. For sure. Yeah. Curious, Matt. Um, what do you think are some of the most common myths related to affairs that you would want to dispute or that you actually dispute or find yourself disputing? That it's about sex. It's about orgasms. It's about, you know, the affairs or um, it's about, uh, you know, somebody not being enough. I, I feel like the myths come actually more through the offended spouse. Um, they believe they're not beautiful enough. They're not enough. They're not um, manly enough to hold on to their, their bride. Like there's, there's a sense of, I hear it all the time, this huge myth of I'm not enough to be loved. I'm not enough to be cared for. I'm not very. And uh, so we just have, we got to understand like, um, well, of course, like if I've been abandoned, what does it, what does it say? Like somebody who could be abandoned, they adopt all these myths about themselves as to why they're sitting on the side of the road and they're not traveling with their spouse anymore. Um, they adopt all these myths and these identities about who they must be in order for that to happen to them. Um, so, uh, I would say like that is, that, that's one of the, the big ones I feel like I'm, I'm fighting against. Um, so uh, on the one side, it you know somehow it's like, well, you know, the individual must be a sex addict, or they must be, um, you know, I would say like morally deviant or something, right? Like there's mm-hmm. a how to fight that a lot that there's something like, well, you're just you're just messed up, like you got some sick problems, and yeah. I'm, like, I'm fighting that one too to give to give you know bring respect back to the person who's um, been injured and wounded themselves, but has chosen hurtful paths of trying to heal themselves yeah. um, maybe i just gave away a little bit of the thing that i do there like if you've been trying to heal yourself playing your own doctor through what you've been doing over here on the side and mm-hmm. um but so i think those are two big ones it's it's all about sex and i have to adopt the identity of this abandoned person is like i'm the one who caused this you know it's uh you know if we look and it's so we go back to that abuse word again real quick uh children that have uh, we, who have been, I will say, let's go with physically abused, emotionally abused. Um, you hear them say, it's my fault. 
if I had done different, if I had, um, you know, if I had not uh, left my room dirty when mom or dad came home drunk, then I wouldn't have been beaten. It's my fault. Um, and so we hear that same thing happen in a fair recovery where, so that's like the similarities there. It's like, well, if, 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 if my body looked different, if I worked out more, if I ate different, if, you know, if I just did money different, if I, you know, it's like, then they, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have. So another big myth that spins off of that one is, uh, the myth of, um, responsibility, uh, and what it means. Like, so I'm now responsible to control their healing. The big myth I try to crush all the time. I can control them. So if I'm good enough, pretty enough, beautiful enough, um, strong enough, smart enough, I can make sure they never do this to me again. So I feel like I'm fighting that one a lot. Yeah. 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 Well, and we know that those who've survived trauma um, can, in an unhealthy way, try to take control so that they can prevent it from happening again, which, you know, the flip side of that is you're taking responsibility for things that aren't yours. And so it, 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 it spins up in that way. So, uh, Matt, this was so good. Thank you so much. I think you will, um, really, uh, gift a lot of people with just an understanding of, I think relationships in general, but specifically, um, affair work and betrayal work and relation relational trauma and how to heal that. So we ask two questions at the end of every show because we want to have conversations um, and dialogue on here where everybody grows. Um, so what uh, would you uh, what would you like our audience to take away from this conversation and what would you want them to know? What do you want to leave them with? You know, I would try to leave people with the encouragement that all three of us have to hold on to that, you know, a fair recovery produces a better marriage when two people are willing to do the work. Um, yep. And so in all the heaviness of everything that we've talked about in the pain in which we've addressed and maybe even people listening today are feeling just like, oh man, like a weight. Um, I just really want to just encourage everybody that it, this doesn't have to be the end in a presentation I do called the fair recovery. It doesn't have to be the end. That's, that's the whole point. It's like your yeah. end does not have to be determined by the wound. Um, I love to, you know, see that, um, for those of us who, um, are, uh, believers, we believe that Christ still has his scars and we will know him by his scars. And that's a thing in our life where we, recognize that scars, uh, you know, I have one on my index finger on uh, my right hand, and I remember that story. Um, and I can kind of just recognize like what it taught me in life uh, from an, uh, a child about risky behavior and what not to do. Um, but scars and stories, when we let them heal and form, they remind us of who we are and where we come from. So this doesn't like you don't have to be destined to um, to divorce. You don't have to be destined to be in despair. You don't have to be destined to be in loneliness. I would say that that's the pain determining you. And so a fair recovery, really want everybody to hear it. If you're willing, your spouse is willing, like, it can get 
better. And again, there's no time constraint in my words there. It can get better. It will get better. There's so much hope that's available. Um, but both people um, need to really be willing to do the work that has to be done to get there. So good. Hey, Matt, curious. What's your takeaway from our conversation today? Um, it's a lot going on. <laughs> I think sometimes when we when we talk about these conversations, I think there's a uh, there's just there's a lot of complexity, um, and there's a lot of heaviness. And so I think the takeaway is that it is really nice to have colleagues that you can talk to, uh, mm -hmm. and other people who know what's going on. That's one major takeaway. Uh, other other takeaway is that um, I, I hope people hear and 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 it's a good reminder. Like we're not going into this process without an idea of what's going on. Um, for those who are in in pain and yeah. hurting, like there is structure and there is knowledge about how to help, and so finding. Uh, someone, uh, you know, Jenna, Kimberly, I, or, or many others around mm -hmm. us that do yeah. recovery well, um, find somebody who knows a little bit more about what they're doing because it's not hopeless. Um, if people have been paying attention and listening, it is complex, but there's plans. There's ways to address hurt. There's ways to address pain. Uh, so that's, you know, it's great to have people to consult with, and it is really good to know that there there are plans and ways to, to get through this. Amazing. Thank you, Matt. You are such a gift um, to our field, to us as friends. I think our listeners will really be um, blessed by uh, just your willingness to unpack these, uh, again, really complex ideas um that are messy and painful uh but as you said uh, really do bring about some beautiful beautiful outcomes when all parties are willing um we're, we're in such agreement there thank you so much for being on the show thank you all it's been great to see you guys again talk to y'all oh wow i love any conversation with Matt and especially when the three of us can get together and talk about what we do, how we do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then just, you know, his, his wisdom and, um, just that it's, it's a bold wisdom, but it's also such a compassionate and kind wisdom, which I think is just so refreshing and I yeah. appreciate it. So curious what your takeaway from our conversation is I, I think the thing that struck me most out of all the good things that you know happened um is just his willingness to so boldly name what what is wrong um to to you know specifically calling behaviors abusive. I just know so many, so many people that for reasons I, I even understand are afraid to use appropriate labels mm -hmm. 
and would rather move away from calling a spade a spade because of the consequences, and yet they miss what the consequence will be for avoiding that. Yeah. Because you really cannot, you cannot move forward in many cases without being honest about what it is that we're dealing with. And so I just have such an appreciation for that, that he holds so beautifully in tension with this compassion mm-hmm. and kindness. Um, and, you know, you and I have had the the pleasure of having a professional relationship with him and he just brings such a warmth and kindness to the space um, that he he is doing it out of love. So I, I think that was the takeaway for me. What about you? Mm-hmm. Very similar. Um, just the ability to, yeah, be nuanced and complex as he holds, I think, a really hard conversation and work. Um, and, you know, we've talked about this before, but our values of and, you know, just being able to, like you said, name truth and reality and call it what it is and no judgment or condemnation about that, but we're also going to live in reality and call it what it is so that we can move forward, which is so full of hope and mm-hmm. belief in the best. Like, Hey, here's what this is. This is a trust trauma. This is an abuse, but I also have the highest hope that you can move through it. Yeah. And also just, you know, as a clinician to be able to go, and if someone doesn't choose that, then not, not mine to force or push, but if they're willing, Mm -hmm. let's go and, and just walk so well with others in that trauma and that mess. And I think just, I can imagine if I put myself in his like client's shoes in the middle of trauma and and disruption and ruptures in the relationship, how grounding and clear that would feel to go here, here's the path forward. It's windy. It's messy. It's not a formula, but we got to name it for what it is. There is hope, but you have to choose that. And just that guidance. I just think, wow, um, what a gift he is. Um, to me and just teaches me things, but then also to his clients. And so, yeah, took a lot Mm -hmm. away today, but definitely just his ability to hold the end so, so well. Yes. Yes. And be honest with integrity. I mean, he, he is a gift. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Arable Podcast is hosted by Jenna Mountain and Kimberly Galindo. And edited and co-produced by Chris Vargas and hosted on Podbean. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Visit our website, arablepodcast.com, and find Arable Podcasts on Instagram or Facebook. You can also find both of us on Facebook. You can find me, Kimberly Galindo, on Instagram at the Kimberly Galindo. And me, Jenna Mountain, on Instagram at the Jenna Mountain.